2: Hey, while you're cleaning the hearth, so any drop-in visitors don't get covered in ash, why don't you mosey on over to BigPictureScience.org and hit the Donate to the Show button. We'll be sure to toast you in honor of your kindness, your allegiance, and your support. Happy Holidays! It's official, the kilogram has changed. I mean, it's still a kilogram, but it now has more kilogramness. The reason goes back to around the time the first stage of the Eiffel Tower was completed when a hunk of metal was placed in a Parisian vault to define the kilogram's mass. It was the kilogram and has been ever since. But having a man-made physical object as a measurement standard has been considered by some scientists to be regrettable and eventually a faux pas. It's time, scientists say, for a more stable, a more reliable alpha kilogram.
3: The kilogram has really never done anything to me. In fact, I, I hold it in very, very high esteem, but I think it's come to the end of its
4: scientific utility. Over the last decades, in science and technology, we have moved away from man-made objects. So no real feet anymore, no yardsticks, no platinum.
2: The replacement of the kilogram has given measurement scientists cause for celebration. But what does any of this have to do with the price of tea in China? Well, it may be relevant to that, actually, depending on the quantities involved, but it does matter if you take prescription medicine or want to do science and technology research. I'm Seth Shostak.
5: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, Why Accuracy is Better Than Winging It, an introduction to the thing defining the new kilogram, and whether, as we measure with increasing precision, from cesium atomic clocks to gravitational wave detectors, something fundamental isn't lost along the way. It's for good measure.
2: Proofrock said that his life was measured out in coffee spoons, but for the rest of us, weight, temperature, and time are the real measures of our lives.
5: And we rely on there being agreed-upon standards for some measurements, at the very least to keep us from arguing all the time. A dash of salt is okay, and so is hand-me-a-bunch-of-nails. But imagine a clerk trying to sell you fabric that is plenty for whatever you're making, or builders dumping an amount of gravel that is
2: whatever Jerry's truck can hold. We all depend on the scientists who are committed to exactitude.
3: My name is John Pratt. I'm a mechanical engineer at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, where I engage in a lot of fussy science, trying to come up with measures of objective reality,
2: Although the NIST, or NIST, scientist also says, he finds the idea of objective reality absurd.
3: I oftentimes try to drag people into thinking about what it is we mean by measurement and what we mean by science. In my business of measurement science, it sort of begins with this presumption that there is a world out there independent of our thoughts. I call that objective reality.
5: John, NIST is charged with developing standards of measurement, and to give perspective as to why we need standards, we thought we'd illustrate by presenting the results we got when we asked people to measure an object for the first time. Now, before I continue, I should ask, does NIST have standard measurements for bananas?
3: Not directly that I'm aware of.
5: Then this may inspire.
3: Oh, certainly.
5: (laughs) Well, we asked members of our radio team to come up with a method for measuring a banana. And I'm wondering if you are up for critiquing their approaches. Oh, sure. (laughs) Okay. And whether any would actually make a good standard approach to the measurement of this fruit. Well, let's give it a go. Okay. Here is the first approach.
6: Hi, my name is Simon Steele. I'm an astronomer. And I propose to measure a banana by measuring how much potassium it has. And I do this because, besides being yellow and curved, having high potassium content is what bananas are actually famous for. But what I'm really measuring is the radioactive decay of potassium-40. So all I need for this experiment is some nuclear physics, a Geiger counter, and I suppose a banana. As potassium-40 decays, it falls to pieces, and electrons fly out of your banana. So yes, technically, your banana is decaying as you hold it. We use the click of the Geiger counter to detect those escaping electrons. There's a YouTube video of a Geiger counter sitting next to a bunch of bananas, should you want to watch that in your own time. The key here is that in nature, there is a fixed ratio of normal potassium to potassium 40. Normal potassium just sits around forever, but the potassium 40 decays. So if you know the ratio, and I measure the clicks my banana sets off in the Geiger counter, I'll be able to calculate the total amount of potassium in the banana. Here's the thing, as this is a proposal, I don't actually have a Geiger counter, but I do have the sound effect of a Geiger counter. I'm confident that if I had a real Geiger counter, instead of an audio pretense, I could carry out this experiment. So where does this actually leave us? How much potassium is in this banana I'm holding in my hand? I cheated here, I looked up the amount of potassium in a banana and the surprisingly extensive literature on banana composition. It turns out that the average banana has about 0.5 grams of potassium. But a bigger banana has more potassium. So the bigger banana you have, the more radioactive your banana becomes. So you can measure a banana by the amount of potassium it has. That is, if you don't slip up in your calculations.
5: Well, John, Simon wasn't able to fulfill his Geiger counter measurement of a banana. But how sound is his approach?
3: I think he's, he's done a great job of laying out a standard procedure, to create a baseline for a standard banana's radioactive decay, and then I think he'll be able to extrapolate to the the relative size of the banana.
5: He's deciding not to measure it by its length or, uh-huh. you know, mash it up in a cup, as, as a cook might do, and see if you have a cup or a cup and yeah, a half yeah. of banana. He wants to measure the potassium content. And is this a valid approach toward measurement? Sure.
3: There are just a lot of different quantities that are, are of interest. In a banana, I saw that even in the EU, they were toying with standards for that curve that he says at the beginning of his talk, which would be a dimensional measurement.
5: Well, it gets to your challenge of an objective reality. Because in yep. this case, for Simon, the reality of a banana is how much potassium it has in it, not necessarily its size or its shape. So that's one way to approach the definition of an object is by its composition.
3: Yeah, yeah. And he's moving an abstraction, right? He's assuming there's a fixed relationship between the composition and the size, right? And that is an an abstraction that is assuming a certain deterministic scientific relationship in the way that fruit assembles itself from molecules. But I think with a bio-object like that, the concentration of water in it and other species that come along for the ride... (laughs) Um, is, is pretty highly variable.
5: Do the scientists at NIST use the composition of an object as a way of measuring it, and in what situations is that practical?
3: This is a great example of the kind of work we do in our standard reference materials, where we will take a common material like peanut butter, for instance, and we will do a lot of chemical tests on it determining the composition of that peanut butter And we will put it in a jar and verify that it's got X grams of fat and X grams of fiber. And that is available then to manufacturers who want to put it into their highly specialized compositional test equipment. So it
5: sounds like they're sticklers. Is that a pun on sticky? Yes. (laughs) That would
3: be, yes. (laughs) For the fat
5: content. Next contestant in the banana challenge. My name is Sarah Derwin. I'm a geologist,
0: and I'm also persnickety about bananas. There's a short window when I think that they're perfect, not too soft, not too banana-y, somewhere between a spring green to a mild yellow. But trying to eyeball that color can be imprecise. So I propose using a handy geologist tool called a Munsell soil color chart to measure the color of this banana. The chart works kind of like a book of paint chips. But in this case, each chip has a hole punched near the color so geologists can compare a bit of the soil to the color on the chip. Geologists use this chart to name soil or rock colors, but it could easily be used on a banana. I'm looking at three metrics in the banana, hue, value, and chroma, and each metric will get a number. Using this chart, the hue of this banana looks kind of like a daffodil yellow, a number value of 10yr, and a tad too yellow for my taste. I prefer a 5Y, the Goldilocks of yellow hues. Now for the value, or shade. This banana shade is perfect, a number 8. Last is chroma, or the intensity of color. You know, new blue jeans versus worn-in blue jeans. And it looks like this banana is new blue jeans, an intense yellow. So in geologist speak, I was looking for a 5Y86 banana, but I can work with a 10YR88. It's a bit too ripe for my oatmeal,
5: but it's perfect for banana bread. Well, John, Sarah is using the Munsell soil color chart uh, to measure her banana. Uh, Certainly, we judge bananas by their color when we go shopping for them. As a professional at NIST, is this practical?
3: Yes, very, very practical. In fact, NIST references of color get used all the time in the uh, ideing of food. So we provide uh, standards. I, I'm familiar with the, uh, the standards that they use for LED lighting, for instance, and you want to get LEDs that have a certain blue to them or a certain coolness. And there, there's all these sort of biometric descriptors, and they've worked very hard to understand the way the human eye reacts to color, and the way in which the physical object responds to light.
5: And what's interesting here by Sarah's approach is that she's not guesstimating, she's actually using a tool so she could be very precise in her color determination.
3: Yeah, no, I, I thought it was awesome because it reduced, <laughs> No, it reduces to practice. Um, we have, at least historically, and I think we still do, we used to make uh, reference color tiles. And so I was imagining the way in which those Monsell color tiles that she's using, that originally, I'm guessing, they have some link to these color tiles or color standard references from NIST. And everybody's perception of color is a little bit different. And that was one of the things, like, the NIST scientists have to work out is, what is a mean human response to color? I, I think it's a very rich area. I'm wondering when we'll be able to talk in very specific molecular terms about what goes on in brain cognition. Oh, anyway, it's, it's a, there's always something new to do in science.
5: <laughs> well, here is the last approach that one of the Big Picture Science members took to banana measurement.
7: My name's Gary Niederhoff. I'm a musician, and I'm going to measure the volume of a banana. So I downloaded a decibel meter onto my phone and put it next to the banana, but it turns out these are very, very quiet bananas. So instead, I'll measure the space it takes up, which is another definition of the word volume. And uh, to do that, I'm going to use one of the oldest tricks in the book, and that is the Archimedes method of water displacement. So what I have here is a uh, graduated cylinder that is filled with water up to 750 milliliters. And what I'm going to do is just put the banana, submerge it entirely in the water, and see how high the water gets on that graduation. So now I'm placing the banana into the water. And looking at the graduation, it's up to about 880. So it's about 130 milliliters or 130 cubic centimeters of volume for this banana. And it's still very quiet.
5: He's using Archimedes' displacement approach, in which you measure the amount of water that is displaced by an object. And that sounds closer to what NIST might be doing. I mean, after all, it's as old as the Greeks.
3: Certainly, and it's still a good methodology. Everything old isn't necessarily out of practice. And yes, we use the same techniques for for determining the volumes of various solids.
5: Well, so then, in summary of the banana challenge, there are many ways to measure a banana, and it sounds like, according to you, they all have their merits.
3: Yes, and I would say one of the things that's particularly useful in measurement is to come up with two different ways of measuring the same thing, because that helps determine this truth about objective reality.
5: And it strikes me, though, but out of the three approaches, perhaps Sarah's measurement of color and then Gary's measurement of water displacement will tell you pretty quickly um, whether or not that's a banana that is ripe enough or large enough or small enough for you to eat. And Simon's is a little bit more indirect. You'd have to know the relationship between the amount of potassium to the size of the banana before you determined whether or not you wanted to eat or buy that banana.
3: I'd agree. And this is one of the things that's always a, a primary consideration in trying to develop standards is their suitability to the purpose.
5: Well, let's move on and talk about, first of all, thank you for being a judge in the banana measuring contest.
3: Oh, it was my pleasure.
5: Now, let's talk about what the National Institute of Standards and Technology does. And we want to get an overview of this, but I'm going to present you with one of the big picture questions. Doing a little research on this, I think it was John Quincy Adams that said that weights and measures may be ranked among the necessities of life to every individual of human society. Now, that is quite a claim on the importance of measurement in our lives. John, was he right? What would life be like without a shared set of measurements?
3: Oh, yeah, this one's close to my heart. I will agree with John Quincy Adams, but I've sometimes said that I I feel like to measure is human, that we sort of began as a species with our cognition sort of beginning with a, a sense of the passage of time that we have these five senses, and it sort of dominates how we perceive the universe, and that as we tried to communicate with each other, which I think is the essence of humanity, is sort of a shared experience, it became both desirable, convenient, just part of the fabric of our lives, to have sort of a common way communicating about our sensory perception of the world.
5: Well, I wonder if you could give us an overview of the sorts of things that you're charged with measuring there at at NIST.
3: The easiest place to begin is just with the physical uh, measurements. I'm in the the physical measurement lab, so that's a natural for me. And that goes tied directly to what we have agreed on as as societies around the globe as being a set of agreed-upon standards for measuring space, time, mass, electrical quantities, the power grid. There are standard reference materials for x-rays. I did one on a a nanoscale cantilever for measuring atomic scale forces.
5: What's the weirdest thing that NIST is charged with measuring, or maybe the most obscure?
3: Well, I think the thing that seems to capture people's imagination is the thought that we, we have standard reference peanut butter. I was surprised to hear that we characterize things like UV degradation of plastics.
5: It can get very specific.
3: It can get really specific. In fact, usually that's when we're called in. So we handle both ends of that spectrum. We do the really, really very, very, very specific and then things that are incredibly general, like time.
5: Now, on the list of all the things that you said that NIST is charged with measuring, how do you go about setting a standard? Who sets the standard and who follows it?
3: It depends on whether it's sort of a documentary standard or a physical standard. But in the end, there has to be an agreement among a community to accept the standard. So it's never done in a vacuum. For it to be of utility, it, it needs to be something that a community of interested parties will agree on. We are
5: going to talk about extreme precision coming up, but to prepare us for that, John, I wonder if you could describe your tattoo, because it's relevant.
3: Oh, sure. There was a a medallion that was cast in 1840 to celebrate the adoption of the metric system in France, and I thought it was a beautiful medallion. It it showed this sort of goddess holding a meter bar and a kilogram, and it was emblazoned with a, a French motto that is attributed to Condorcet from around 1790 or so. I won't butcher the French. I'll just say it in English. It's for all times, for all people. And I I really like that sentiment with this idea of how measurement can be for all times and and for all people if we get it right. It's probably about a a 3-inch diameter tattoo here. The guy did just a beautiful job of drawing the uh, the goddess on here. And... uh, Anyway, I really like it, but...
5: I hope you like it since it's permanent. (laughs) It's off to France. We go next, at least in our minds.
2: John Pratt is a mechanical engineer at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, and he's sticking around as we take this conversation to a new level of precision.
5: The reign of Le Grand K has come to an end. After well more than a century, this hunk of metal sitting in a Parisian vault will no longer define the kilogram. Find out what will next.
2: It's for good measure on Big Picture Science.
1: Sick of being upsold at gyms?
2: In the world of measurement, change is afoot. Actually, the foot is one of the few things that won't change. We're taking the measure of things in this episode, and what's been going on in the world of metrology, the science of measurement, has been nothing less than, well, revolutionary. The latest development, transforming our definition of mass, as scientists consider new standards. Four of
5: the seven base units of what's called the International System of Units, or SI, are getting new definitions. The ampere, the kelvin, the mole, and the kilogram.
2: But the kilogram is the only one of them that's been defined by an artifact. In this case, a cylinder of platinum and iridium. Scientists and policymakers from 60 countries have agreed on new physical constants upon which to base definitions going forward. When they did, the only thing drowning out the standing ovation was the sound of corks popping from champagne bottles. We return to mechanical engineer John Pratt.
5: Well, John, measurement scientists are getting rid of the kilogram, as we knew it at least, and they seem to be doing so with glee. Why is this? Why this euphoria?
3: I have a a friend, Stefan Schlaminger, another guy with a tattoo, who, who, who feels like we're the laughingstock of the universe because we can't explain mass to anybody outside of the planet. And what he means by that is that when when we had mass tied to a, a single artifact, a, a single hunk of metal that we all agreed was one kilogram by definition, and it's purely by definition, you just picked an object and said, yes, is it like I, in some imperious sort of way, that is a kilogram. It wasn't a constant of nature. It wasn't something independent of humans. Um, and so it was nice to finally... Move away from that. We'd moved away from it in all other measurement of physical reality, and it was just nice to get to a place where we could do mass in in a fashion that wasn't tied to an actual object.
5: And in this case, it's an a physical object that has had to be maintained over time for about a hundred and thirty years or so. Can you just introduce us, as we say hello and goodbye, to La Grande K? What is it?
3: It is a um, thirty nine millimeter diameter by 39 millimeter tall cylinder of platinum iridium. And it was made in 1880, I believe, 1875, 1880.
5: And it's it's under lock and key, or I should say it's under triple vault. (laughs) Something like that in Paris.
3: Yeah. Very rarely used because, of course, the problem with an artifact, we talked about my tattoo for all times, for all people. And so having A single standard in Paris under lock and key is clearly not for all times or all people.
5: This is because it can grow and shrink a little bit. And I understand that when it comes out for cleaning, that might actually change the amount. Yeah. and How? uh, How? Can you describe how?
3: How? Well, maybe the easiest thing to understand is if I were to touch the kilogram with my thumb, if I was to put a thumb on the, the balance, so to speak, the thumbprint, the oils from your thumb that would be left on the surface that someone could identify you with, um, would also leave a mass of approximately 6 micrograms on the surface. So it's easy to contaminate the surface, I guess, is the, the short answer.
5: Okay. So for a measurement scientist, this is important. You're paying attention to differences in measurement like that, a fraction of a gram, But aren't we talking about precision that, frankly, most of us wouldn't notice? If my bushel of apples weighs, I don't know, 50 micrograms less than I thought it was supposed to weigh, I can be bold enough to say I don't think I would notice.
3: Yeah, and I think you would be absolutely correct that there's very few practical instances where this makes a difference in day-to-day commerce and in day-to-day life, where it had become uh, something of a bit of a of an intellectual embarrassment, at least if if not a, an actual embarrassment, it was in science, where every forty years or so, when the kilogram would be brought out to be checked against its witnesses, kilograms that were made at the same time and were supposed to be exactly identical, and were determined to be, in terms of mass, identical to the kilogram within the resolution of of the balances of the day, which were incredible. I could go on and on about the beauty of the mechanics of balances and comparing like things to like things, but let's get to the point here and that was that they were all the same, but you would let them go and then you would compare them after 40 years and you would see that they differed from each other. So big deal. It doesn't seem to affect the way in which we measure bananas in the grocery store, but What would have to happen is that we would have to change the value of all of the other physical constants related to the kilogram and this would involve the mass of the electron this would involve Planck's constant it would involve many many fundamental constants of physics and it seemed ridiculous to be changing their values because the value of a, of a platinum iridium mass had changed.
5: And it wasn't just the kilogram. It was the ampere, the kelvin, and the mole, which we use to measure amount of substance. They're all getting new definitions. They will all be based on fundamental constants. So what happens to that hunk of metal in Paris? Does it become the most celebrated paperweight? What do you do with it? We'll keep measuring it. Because that's what you guys do. It's exactly what we do. (laughs) John Pratt, thank you so much for taking the time. I don't know exactly how much time, but you probably do, but taking the time to talk to us.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. John Pratt is a mechanical engineer at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Okay, well, I'm concerned about how this new definition of the kilogram is going to change my gusto-grabbing lifestyle. And we all can't wait to know what non-artifact-based description will replace it. Let's check in with MIT physicist and Nobel laureate in physics, Wolfgang Ketterle. Wolfgang, a kilogram is about 2.2 pounds. And if I have a carton of milk here that is somehow labeled kilogram because it was imported from Europe or some strange place like that, what we have is a new definition of the kilogram. So is this carton of milk still going to be a kilogram?
4: Well, you would hope so because that's what the label says. (laughs) Well, yes, but we've redefined the kilogram after all. Yes, but the new definition of the kilogram agrees with the old definition with a precision of one part in 10 to the 8. So it's only one-hundredths of a millionth at this level of precision there is a change with the new definition.
2: So what is the new measure? I mean, I I presume they didn't take another hunk of platinum and, you know, mill it down in the machine shop and and make a new kilogram and say, well, this one's
4: going to be better. They've taken a different approach here. Oh, yeah. The new definition reflects what we have done actually with everything, the second, the meter, with all other, you know, things we want to measure. We are defining the units in terms of perfect objects, objects made by nature and not man-made objects which have imperfection. What we have now done instead is we define the kilogram as the mass of an exact number of natural particles. And one could have picked electrons, one could have said, so and so many electrons, their mass is now one kilogram. Or one could have picked any atom in the periodic table, because atoms are made by nature according to the laws of nature. And a hydrogen atom, a cesium atom, it's absolutely identical everywhere in the world, everywhere in the universe. For instance, if there is an extraterrestrial population and we would tell them one kilogram is the mass of so many atoms of hydrogen, they could actually create their own kilogram without ever going to Paris. They're missing something there, I sure guess. <laughs> but but this is in this is kind of elegant, it's precise, and it uses the fact that in nature all the electrons, all the atoms, all the particles we know everywhere in the world are just absolute identical copies. Which particle is it? I mean I, so I, it's, I, I guess this yeah. is not a secret, right? No it's not a secret, but I'm just saying it plainly because now the question is what is the number and what is the particle? So they could have picked the electron or any atom they wanted, but they picked the photon, a quantum of light, the photon of a certain frequency. A photon has energy, and therefore a photon also has mass. A photon, a quantum of electromagnetic radiation, emitted by the cesium atom, this was the definition of time and frequency.
2: All right, well, let me back up just a little bit. So you're saying it's a certain number of photons, that is to say little corpuscles of light, if you will, as produced by cesium atoms. How do you measure the mass of a bunch of photons? After all, they're moving at the speed of light, they're going to get away
4: from your lab. How do you do it? So if a photon travels at the speed of light, it has actually, even in some physical sense, no mass, because you cannot bring it to rest and measure its mass. But you can put many photons in a box. Just imagine you have a box with shiny mirrors and the photons are just reflected back and forth. We call that a cavity or a resonator. And in such a box, you can put in many, many photons. And if you put this specified number of photons, which is about 1.5 times 10 to the 40, if you put this number of photons into the box, the box is one kilogram heavier. Would you be able to actually do that. No, (laughs) that's a definition. And now this is a precise definition, but now we can realize this definition in many ways. But I just want to be very precise in, in saying a kilogram is so and so many, a defined number of particles. This is the mass.
2: But, but you've already said, I mean, I, I can't build this box with the internal mirrors. It wouldn't
4: work. The mirrors are not perfect, whatever. You're absolutely right. But now but now comes, you know, metrology is science and we have developed techniques and definitions are now implemented. And let me explain how. By having photons absorbed by, by atoms, we do spectroscopy, we compare the mass of the photon with the mass of an electron. So we are trading in photons against something which is heavier, the electron, and then we compare the electron with the mass of an atom, and again we trade it in against something which is a few thousand times heavier. And it's only after we have done several of those trade-ins, then we count, because then the counting becomes manageable. And this is where it is important, Uh, if you want to measure something which is really tiny, let's say a tiny amount of a precious chemical, if you want to measure it precisely, you had to first go to Paris, compare with a kilogram, and then divide the kilogram down into a milligram or something, if this is what you want to measure. But with a method of counting, you just count the number of atoms, but you count to a thousand times smaller number of atoms, and then you have a milligram exactly and precise. If somebody were to ask you, look, I'm I'm sure that,
2: you know, a lot of physicists have worked for a long time to decide how they're going to define the kilogram, they've got this new definition, it's accurate to parts in a hundred million, but how does that affect their lives? What would you tell them?
4: Well, I would tell them that in everyday's life, the small mass differences don't matter But in the world of science and technology, it matters. In many laboratories in the world, people do extremely precise measurements, and they help them to understand materials, to understand the laws of nature, and based on that insight, new technologies come out. So this is important, but there are now opportunities to improve the metrology for, you know, small substances, new pharmaceutical products of of immense capabilities, we're talking about nanotechnology, so it will be more and more important also for commerce, for health, to control small amounts of nanoparticles and precious substances. And the new definition of the kilogram allows us to measure those small quantities more precisely. Well,
2: Wolfgang Ketterle, thank you so very much for speaking
4: with us. You're very welcome.
5: MIT physicist and Nobel laureate in physics, Wolfgang Ketterle. Well, now that we can measure with astounding precision from cesium atomic clocks that are accurate to better than a second in a million years, to detecting gravitational waves that distort space by less than one thousandth of the width of a proton, is something fundamental lost
8: along the way? My warning is don't fall into the trap of revering precision and forgetting about the other wonders of the more natural world.
2: That's next. It's for good measure on Big Picture Science.
5: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th.
2: Our ability to achieve precision allows us to set measurement standards. It also guided us in the development of very accurate machine tools that allowed for mass manufacturing, interchangeable parts. That, in turn, is what displaced the craftsmen and artisans among the few casualties of extreme precision, according to author Simon Winchester.
5: There are others, such as an appreciation for the beauty of imperfection. Mr. Winchester's latest book, The Perfectionist, How precision engineers created the modern world takes us back to the beginning of mass manufacturing.
8: The man who was the, if I can go, the father of all this chap called Henry Maudsley, who made the first proper micrometers, who made the first cutting tools, he cut his teeth, if I can make awful puns, on the first real manufacturing process in Britain, probably therefore in the world, which was making pulley blocks for the Royal Navy. Pulley blocks used to be made by hand. They were made of elm wood, and they had bits of metal inside them to act as fulcrums and so forth. But they were made in cottage industries all over the south of England. And the Navy needed, because the Royal Navy at that time was beginning to get into high gear to rule the seas, it needed about 100,000 a year of these pulley blocks. And so it worked these artisans extremely hard And then Maudsley came along and said to the Navy, okay, to take an elm tree and to turn it into a pulley block, how many discrete mechanical processes does an artisanal carpenter do? And they counted them all, they chamfered them, smoothed them, shaped them, 43 different processes. So he said, I will make a machine to make each one of those processes one after another. And so he did, it took him a couple of years. He came up with 43 gigantic iron machines, one that chamfered, one that polished, one that shaped, and powered them all with the James Watt steam engine. And then they fed in into a hopper at one end, elm trees, and sure enough, out of the other end came a fully finished pulley block. And so at a stroke, the Navy was delighted because it could order 100,000, 200,000, however many they needed, but at a stroke, Artisanal carpentry in Britain died almost overnight. I mean, it ceased to be prosperous and worthwhile for the, for them to continue their work, and they had to therefore go and make chairs or tables or whatever. So it was a beginning of an indication of the social effects of precision engineering. The story that you described there, Simon, sounds very
2: much like the story of Henry Ford, you know, production line manufacturing of automobiles, where at each stage in the process, there was one machine, maybe a machine, and certainly, uh, you know, one or two employees doing the same task, that one task, over and over, at which they could get very good, and I suppose the machinery could get very good.
8: Yes, but thereby lies, I think, an important distinction. In the book, I compare the work of two Henrys, Henry Ford and Henry Royce. Henry Royce was a craftsman who wanted to make the best car in the world and teamed up with a man called rolls and made rolls royces henry ford by contrast wanted to make a car that could be afforded by almost everyone in the united states so rolls royces although you would think they were more precisely made animals were made by hand and if something didn't fit then the engineer working on the line would file the piece until it did with henry ford who as you rightly say had introduced this system of um, the assembly line where hundreds of men each did a discrete job over and over again, machining one part, placing this part in another part and whatever. If one part, let's say a piece of a brake block or a carburettor or something was not made precisely, then it would come down from the hoppers above onto the assembly line. The person on the line saw that it didn't fit And so he had to stop the line until a replacement part could be made to drop down in its place. And this meant the assembly line was shut down for two or three minutes. Men would stand around smoking. It was an extremely expensive mistake because the man on the assembly line didn't have a file or the ability to change the shape of the piece he got. So precision turns out to be much more important, at least in automobile manufacturing, when you're talking about mass manufacturing than when you're talking about handmade machines like the Rolls-Royce. You'd think it was the other way around, but to make many things all the same, inexpensively, you need vitally precision.
2: Now, we've been talking about mechanical precision here, and I think they, the Swiss, for example, still make mechanical movement watches, even though, you know, electronic watches, which rely on the vibrations of a crystal in there and so forth. I mean, they're more accurate, but they are no moving parts, and it's not an, a, a work of art somehow. <laughs> I, I don't know. Is there still room for that kind of precision, where it's precision, if you will, simply for precision's
8: sake? Well, I I make a great play about this in the book because my wife is Japanese-American and the Japanese attitude to precision, I think, is very interesting insofar as, yes, it's a country known for Canon and Nikon and sort of icons of high precision, but also reveres the imprecise, the handmade, the piece of beautiful carpentry and that kind of thing. And this comes through very much in, in the watchmaking industry in Japan because you have a company like Seiko. Seiko invented the quartz watch movement in the 1960s. So, as you say, the oscillation of a quartz crystal at absolute and unvarying frequency, and so you can make clocks and watches that derive from that simple physical fact. So you go to their factory in a place called Morioka in northern Japan And yes, there's an assembly line, all robotically organised these days, making, in their case, tiny little quartz movements for 25,000 wristwatches every day. But if you then go through a set of double doors on the same floor, second floor of the factory, it becomes sort of a cathedral of utter quiet and peace. And there is a room, a clean room, in which there are about 20 men and women, each at a large desk with tweezers and magnifying glasses and tiny components. And they're assembling them all because they're making mechanical watches with mainsprings and hairsprings and jewels and things like that. And they produce about a hundred a day. And the fact of the matter is that a quartz watch will keep time to about maybe a second a year. A mechanical watch made by Seiko will lose or gain four or five seconds a week. So it's, in terms of its precision as a timekeeping instrument, hopelessly inaccurate. But the Japanese don't mind. They say they'd rather have something which is beautiful, which keeps time well enough, and which is an icon of the craftsman's abilities. So in Japan, and to a lesser extent over here, the two things coexist. Some countries have sold their soul totally to precision. Japan, I'm happy to say, has not.
2: It's really interesting that uh, as the precision increases, we may lose something, at least in certain instances, such as you've just mentioned. Are there any others where, you know, being precise uh, may look good in terms of the, I don't know, specifications for something, but in fact, you'd rather have something that was uh, a little less precise?
8: Well, the whole concept of, once again, in Japan, wabi-sabi, which is the delight in, in nature, because, of course, there are no straight lines in nature enjoying and i go back to wood i mean wood is a material that you cannot make precise it it, it buckles it swells it changes its shape and of course under a magnifying glass it is extremely rough you can only make precise things out of metal and glass and ceramic but if you go into a field like i don't know urushi which is um lacquer making you can spend hours days weeks years making the most beautiful, smooth lacquer bowl, which, when you pick it up, seems so imbued with accuracy and precision, and yet it isn't at all when you compare it to the kind of degree of precision in, well, to give a classic example, I suppose, the LIGO apparatus in um, Washington State and in Louisiana, these huge interferometers, which seek to detect gravitational waves, They are so precise that the mirrors at the end of them, which are pieces of fused quartz, fused silica, so perfectly ground and polished, they can detect differences in length of things in the interferometer tubes of one ten-thousandth of the diameter of a proton. I mean, that is an incredible degree of precision. And yet, to you and me, it sort of means nothing. It's beyond... The realm of our ability to discern. Only machines can discern it. And yet science is going in the direction of making things ever more, ever more precise. Whereas humankind, I think, realizes that there are limits. There are limits both to mechanical precision, there are limits in our ability to make things precisely, and are there are possible limits to our ability to make ultra-precise things for electronics. I mean, they're packing more and more and more into each transistor. The dimensions we're talking about are unimaginably small. And yet, we're wondering, beginning to wonder, whether we're bumping up against limits. To me, as a human being, I think I would be far more entertained, amused, and delighted by a piece of beautiful lacquerware than I would be by any transistor, no matter how precise.
2: Uh, What about the ultimate in precision? I mean... We've already seen experiments in physics labs where they make uh, little motors or something like that, which are uh, assemblies of individual atoms, right? I mean, these things are really remarkably small. They're about as small as you can get, I suppose. And, uh, yet you, and you could say, well, that's, th- that's going to be the end of precision because even at that level, you have things like, I don't know, the uncertainty principle in physics, which is limiting how, how
8: exact all this can be. Is, is there an end to precision? I think there is yes, and I think what you say when things become uncertain, we don't know whether it's a wave or a particle down at that level. At the moment, from my perspective, there's certainly an end to mechanical precision, because we simply will not be able to make things so thin or so flat, or so or strong enough at such incredibly small tolerances. We just don't have the ability to do it. And I think that's been demonstrated now in, for instance, our ability to cool the turbine blades of very, very powerful jet engines. We've sort of reached, at least given the materials that we use to make jet engines with, I think we are beginning to knock against the end of precision there, mechanical precision. Electronic precision, it's another matter, but of course it's relevant to what you've just said. And they'd say, well, you know, perhaps you know, it'll no longer be silica-based, there'll be quantum computing and light computing. So I suspect the demand for ever faster, bigger capacity and so forth will drive that. But the kind of precision that we're working with now, mechanical on one hand, electronic on the other, the limits are being reached, I believe, at the moment.
2: Well, finally, Simon, you raise the question whether this pursuit of exactitude has a downside, especially as the levels of precision become harder and harder to fathom. You even ask whether it's good for us to take precision too far. What do you mean by that?
8: Well, I think we have come somewhat to fetishize it. If we're told that something is more precise this year than it was last year, we'll willingly shell out those dollars to buy it. And I think we're, because of the kind of thing I've just been talking about, the delight in something that, that works adequately as well as you might ever need it to, but is mechanical and is made by a human being with, dare I say it, love and tenderness and so forth, and pride. I think there's a reason to revere that kind of thing. And I like, going back to when I spent many years living in the East where, yes, they revere titanium. No doubt about that, they do. But they also revere bamboo. And I think a society that shows equal reverence to the natural and to the manufactured world is a healthy society. So my warning is don't fall into the trap of revering precision and forgetting about the other wonders of the more natural world. Simon Winchester, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
5: Thank you. Simon Winchester is the author of The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World.
2: So what we're hearing in this story is the onward march toward greater precision. You know, they have a saying in Holland, meiten is weiten. That translates as measuring is knowing. And it's true. You know, precision didn't matter much to the ancients. But when the Royal Navy came along and needed a whole bunch of pulley blocks, or when the railroads came along and needed a whole bunch of standard bolts, well, suddenly precision mattered. We still have those needs today. I mean, if you look at a silicon chip, it's only a half inch on a side, but it may have hundreds of millions of transistors. You really need that precision. And, you know, even aside from technology, precision leads to new physics. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was a 20-second discrepancy in the orbit of Mercury. That led to relativity. The gravitational wave detector, we've talked about how that's all about precision. Can there be too much precision? Well, I suppose so. Physics says that anything smaller than a Planck length, that's 10 to the minus 35 meters if you care, well, at that point, space itself becomes imprecise.
5: Thank you to the carefully weighted decisions made by senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and Operations Manager Barbara Vance. I'm executive producer Molly Bentley.
2: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Schulsky David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Junior Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization who scientists study the origin and nature of life, including the possibility of life on moons. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and I am defined by a hunk of platinum somewhere in Liechtenstein. Also a big thanks to our listeners. Your ears have
5: been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science that's called For Good Measured. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org, and you'll find links to the guests
2: there as well. You may be listening to our radio show, but did you know we're also a podcast? Subscribe to the Sci podcast and you'll never miss an episode. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us.
1: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day,